0: All right, welcome to episode 10 of The Plan. The Plan is our current sermon series that we're going through this year that takes us through the entire story of the Bible uh, from beginning to end, focusing on, one, on the fact that it's all part of one plot. So there's the same plot that drives the story from Genesis to Revelation. And the plot that we've been looking at is this. The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. This is the goal that the Bible is working toward. In the very beginning, God makes the world. He puts people in it. He gives them the job of ruling over the earth on his behalf. And then on the seventh day, he comes in to rest with them because his goal is to live in relationship with them in the earth. We talked then about how humanity messed that arrangement up, and so we lost that relationship with God. And so for for generations, humanity was separated from God. But then God started a new project through Abraham, and the project was that He was going to use one man and his family, and He was going to accomplish the plan for them in one specific place with one specific group of people, and somehow through that He was going to bless the rest of the world. And so, as we're looking at the four parts of the plan, you'll actually see, looking back over the part of the stories, the, the part of the story we've done so far, that God has been methodically putting each of these pieces in place. So, in the Exodus. He, the language that is often used is he bought or ransomed himself a people because he brought them up out of Egypt with his power. They belong to him, so he has a people. And he brings them to Mount Sinai where God's presence is, and he has them build a tabernacle, and he comes down to live with them in the tabernacle, and so he's restored his presence. And all through this, he gives them laws that define for them exactly what their purpose is, exactly what it looks like for them to rule according to his design. And then, uh, so we have people, presence, and purpose. And we've, the last week, we have got through Leviticus, which covers the things that he tells them while they're at Mount Sinai. But there's one piece of the plan that still has not been fulfilled for Israel, and that is the place. They're still at the foot of Mount Sinai. They still have not gotten to the place that God promised them. And so the, we're moving into the book of Numbers, probably one of the, the most underwhelmingly named books in the Bible uh, it's named after the fact that there is, there's a census at the beginning and a census at the end, but there's actually a lot of action in this story, way more than Leviticus. And in this story, we get the sequence of events that happens as they leave Sinai and journey to the promised land. So I'm going to read you this uh, passage from Numbers 10 and then some from Numbers 13. It's going to cover when they leave Sinai, and then what happens when they get to the edge of the promised land. And through these passages, we're going to set our coordinates for the story that we're going to be focusing on. So as I'm reading these passages, I want you to use your outline to track these four things people, so who is the story about, place, where is their home, presence, how can they meet with God, and purpose, what did God tell them to do? All right, so here's the reading. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law then the israelites set out from the desert of sinai and traveled from place to place till the cloud came to rest in the desert of paran they set out this first time at the lord's command through moses a few things happen on their journey and then when they get to their destination just outside the promised land it says the lord said to moses send some men to explore the land of canaan which i'm going which i'm giving to the israelites from each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders when Moses sent them to explore Canaan he said go up through the negev and on into the hill country see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak few or many all right so first coordinate is people who is the story about shouldn't be a surprise. It's been the same answer for a few weeks now, right? It's Moses and the Israelites. The Israelites are God's people. Moses is the specially appointed go-between, the leader of the Israelites, the person who talks to God and the Israelites. So it's about Moses and the Israelites. Where's their home? Their home is the promised land. They're still not in it, but now it's just around the corner. It's just over the hill. It's just across the border. They're like right on the edge looking into the promised land. So they're really close. All they have to do is easily set, easier said than done, is go into the land and conquer it, and they've got the whole plan arranged, right? How can they meet with God? They have left Sinai, which was the place where God's presence dwelt. God lived on Sinai when they got there, but then God moved into the tabernacle, and what we saw at the beginning of the reading is that now when, the, when God actually moves, and they go with him, and God then they set up the tabernacle, and God lives in the tabernacle. So God has not only moved down from the mountain into the tabernacle, but now he has led them away from the mountain, and he's still with the tabernacle. So now we've seen that God will actually leave the mountain and go on the journey with them. Now, what did God tell them to do? There's two things in this passage. There's the big picture thing that he told them to do, and then as they get close, he gives them another specific command. So the big picture thing that they're supposed to do is follow God to the promised land. Right. God's presence gets up, like God, the cloud actually moves, they follow the cloud, it's, God is commanding them when to move, when to camp, like they're, they're, all they have to do is follow God. Okay. And he leads them to the, promise, or to the edge of the promised land, and they're right on the edge, and when, once they get to the edge, God gives them a more specific thing to do at this moment in the story as part of following God, which is send spies into the land. So send 12 spies into Canaan and check out the land. Uh, and, and then they'll figure out, you know, God will tell them what to do from there. So this is where we're at in the story. This is what they need to do. And as we read the rest of the story, we read it with the understanding that this, this is where they're at. And these are the instructions they've been given. And remember that one key to understanding what's going on in a Bible story, because not everything is spoon fed to you, is you, have, you're suppo- you are expected to be keeping track of what God has told them to do and comparing what they do to what God has told them to do. That's part of learning from the story. So let's look at what the Israelites do with these instructions. So the spies went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Labo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, uh, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes, Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some of the pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. All right, so they go in, they explore the land, they spend 40 days there, they, they cut off an enormous cluster of grapes that is so big that they have to carry it on a pole, and that image is actually, I've heard, I think it's currently the, the image they use for... Um, is uh, tourism in Israel is they, the cluster of grapes from this story uh, so how did they do so far they're doing well S- it seems like it but if, if, you, if you pay more attention than I normally do because I had to really study to, to find some of these things there's, this is a point where they start to diverge already from what God told them to do to what they actually did Okay, let me show you a map of what they did so, this is where they started, and they journey all the way up to Lobo Hamath and back. Seems like a pretty good job of spying out the Holy Land, right? Like the Promised Land, they see the whole thing, get a good overview of the whole land, and come back and they can report on everything they saw. Good job, thoroughly done. Except, where did God tell them to go? Did you catch what, God, what, what God, where God actually told them to go? He told them to go Here. the instructions they were given were actually just to explore this part. None of this was listed. Just this part. Just the part that was on the other side of the border from them. Now, nothing in the story tells us that God considered this a sin or punished them, but it's interesting as you read the rest of the story where there there seem to be some consequences that come from the fact that they explored more than God told them to explore. Because they come back with an, a particular impression of the land. and here's what, here's what happens when they come back. It says, They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them into the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is, the, here is its fruit. Okay, pause. That may seem like a weird thing. Like they, You talk about milk and honey, but they brought back grapes. And they see here is its fruit. And I learned what's going on there. It's not actually honey. In Hebrew, it's syrup that was made from fruit. It's just that we've been used to saying milk and honey for centuries, and so the, the translators just stick with honey. But it's actually syrup that they would use to sweeten things, and it's made from fruit. Anyway, that is completely irrelevant to where we're going with the story, but I thought it was interesting. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. So 12 12 went down to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad, and 2 were good. Right. So 10 of them... Uh, they have this really bad impression of the land. It, it's great land, but they, we can't take it because it's too well populated. Caleb and Joshua say, yeah, we can take it. God, well, God through us can take the land. But notice what, they, what the, the ten bad spies focus on. They focus on how well fortified the land is. Archaeology sheds some light on this for us. It's very interesting. If you look at what archaeology has shown us, uh, everything they're afraid of is up here. This area, archaeological evidence shows us that it was fairly sparsely populated and not very well fortified. The, like Jericho is one of the famous ones that they're scared of is up here. You know, everything they, they talk about by the Jordan, by the sea, you know, like, that's all the stuff they weren't sent to look at. Now the fruit that they're excited about, that's from the Valley of Eshkol. that's down here. But most of what they're afraid of is from the land they were not told to go into. So what happened is, they, they went into the whole land, and they looked at the whole big picture of everything God was going to call them to do, and they saw every possible obstacle that they were going to face in the process of conquering the land, and that spooked them. They didn't just look at the place God was sending them next, they looked at the whole place, which isn't necessarily a sin, but it is a bit of a distraction for them, because they're looking at everything involved in conquering the promised land, not just where God is sending them next. And so what happens is, the spies fixated on the big picture of all the obstacles in their path. Every city they were going to have to conquer, every people they were going to have to face, they, they were focused on the whole big picture thing. When God told them, I want you to look at the next place I'm going to send you. So they come back, and they say, yeah, hey, we got this nice grape cluster, but let's talk about all the stuff we saw beyond the land he sent us to. Let's talk about all the, the tall people and all the big, well-fortified cities. and It's a great land, but it's a bit scary up north. Right? Now, Caleb and Joshua are a bit better focused, and so they, they say, no, we can do it, but the spies are not so sure. And so after this report, they, they do what human beings often do, is they start uh, spreading rumors. When, when we're anxious, this is often what we do. We start to talk more about it, and we talk. And it's interesting how the story changes when we talk about it more as we're anxious. You know, the more you dwell on something when you're anxious, and it might get a little worse, the problems might seem a little bigger the next time you describe them. Well, here's what happens. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land, the, the land they explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. Let's pause there. It devours those living in it. Now, what they actually found was it is, it, it, the land produces big crops and apparently big people. Like, it's the opposite of devouring. It actually produces huge in every respect. Like it, is, it does, How does it devour people? That is not their... Experience. If, if it devoured people, they wouldn't have to be afraid of the people who were there. But they have this negative sense of the land. And he says, all the people there are of great size. All the people. Okay? They, we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That, that grasshoppers thing is a bit of an exaggeration, right? Like, we know they weren't... Act, but it's, it's getting big, bigger in their minds. But... What you actually see when you look back at that is nothing that they've just said is true. Okay? Because they say all the people there are giants. In fact, they're all Nephilim, or among them are the Nephilim. The Nephilim are a a group of people who are mentioned one time earlier in the Bible as these great, like mythic level warriors that everybody knows about that were just like amazing stories were told about these warriors who could you know. The problem is, the Nephilim existed before the flood in Genesis six. Which means unless Noah was one of the Nephilim, there are no Nephilim left. And notice, the narrator doesn't tell us that they're Nephilim. Those parentheses, that's in what they are telling. They're saying, hey, we saw some of those. You remember those mythic, uh, amazing warriors that are like the greatest warriors anybody's, uh, you know, like we, the boogeymen we tell stories about to our kids? Yeah, we saw them there. And the interesting thing is that when you follow the story forward, this report is never, is never validated by the experience that they have in the promised land. They do encounter some people who are unusual, like their population is rather tall, but they're not giants. In fact, when they do encounter giants, those people are giants even among their own people. Right? Goliath was not from a city full of giants. He was a giant to the Philistines too. So they did encounter some giants. But this was not a land full of giants. It was not a land full of mythic monster people. There were just some of them were rather tall. So what's happened is they've been so anxious, they're so focused on all the obstacles in front of them, the more they think about it and the more they talk about it, the bigger those obstacles get until they are telling wild rumors throughout the camp of all these horrible things that they're facing if they go across the land. And they've completely focused on how huge these obstacles, obstacles can be. So the spies let anxiety distort their memories. Their memories no longer correspond to what they actually saw. Have you ever had some or heard somebody else do this, where they talk about something you both witnessed, and you're like, "That is not at all what happened." And then maybe you realize that sometimes you must do that. Like, but you just, you know, you can't catch yourself on it. But (laughs) you realize that sometimes I must do that sometimes too. But there's one other thing that's happened here, is they've gotten so fixated on their anxieties that they have forgotten what God has told them. Because even the, the, the reason why they should, God told them, it seems that the reason why God told them to look at the first section is because God had already, just the first part of the Promised Land, is because God had already told them exactly how this was going to go down. Here's what he said way back in Exodus 23, before the Golden Calf, like at the very beginning of the covenant, here's what he says. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Two important things that you would learn from what God has told them right there. Number one, God's going to be the one doing it. Number two, God's going to do it gradually, step by step. He's not going to send them in and have them fight everyone in Canaan at once. So when they go in and they look at every obstacle that they'll ever face in Canaan and they think, we can't do all of these, like, yeah, that's, that's actually true. You can't conquer all of Canaan. Now, God can, can conquer through you, but even he is not planning on conquering everybody at once. We're going to do this in steps. They have completely forgotten this. They've, this has no place in their mindset right now in the way they 're calculating what can we do how, can we actually do what God's telling us to do they 've completely forgotten it. So the spies let anxiety distort their memories and distract from god 's promises. So the anxiety has overwhelmed them, but This is still just 10 guys, right? You've got an entire population of Israelites who over the last three years have seen God send uh, 10 plagues on Egypt, part the Red Sea, close the Red Sea back up over the Egyptian army. They've seen his presence on the mountaintop. They've been fed by miraculous bread six days out of every seven. They have seen the presence of God leave the mountain and come and live with them. And they are currently following the visible presence of God through the wilderness. There's no way that these people are going to get sucked in by this hysteria, right? There's no way you're going to convince them that God can't defeat Canaan. Right? That would be silly, because the Egyptians defeat Canaan all the time. If God defeated the Egyptians, obviously he can defeat Canaan. They're never going to go for this, right? That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, "'If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness.'" Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Like that. In nothing flat, they have completely turned against God, completely abandoned the covenant, the plan, everything that God's said, completely forgotten everything that they've experienced. Just like that. We've talked about this before in this series, how often I wish that you know, if God would just do this thing for me or show up for me in this way, or if I could just like have a face-to-face conversation with the cloud, I would never doubt again. This story proves to us that that is not how human beings work. Human beings have a capacity to forget anything God does for us when, it's, when it satisfies our, our desires in the moment. So what happens is the Israelites lost faith in God and rebelled against his plans. They mutinied we're not following god, we're not following moses, we're not going to the promised land. We're going back to Egypt. We'd rather be slaves than go into the promised land. So now Israel has done what they're going to do, and now we look at what how god is going to respond. He's not happy. Then the glory of the lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. This probably sounds familiar if you remember the sermon that we did on the golden calf incident. God says the same thing. Difference here is that God said that privately to Moses the first time. Now they're having this conversation in front of everybody. So the whole group, the whole congregation, gets to hear what God's saying. He's saying, "We're going to wipe. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with you, Moses." And if you think that that's an overreaction, just know capital punishment continues to be the the, the penalty for mutiny because on a ship, on a ship, authority is really, really important because you're completely cut off from everybody else. It, you, you have to be able to keep order in the ship because you're surrounded by water. There's no help coming. Like, command is important. You've got to be able to work together to get the ship back to port. Like, that's very important. Okay? The Israelites are in the exact same situation. They're in the desert. The only reason they're still alive is because God has been miraculously feeding them. They're in the desert, basically in the middle of an ocean. They've got slavery in Egypt on one end, and they've got hostile Canaanites on the other end. It's really important for them to stay together, or they're all going to die. Right? They've got to be moving together in one direction. So this is full-on mutiny. That is very serious business because not only the fate of Israel depends on this, but because Israel is God's chosen people, the fate of humanity rests on this because God's plan is to, to bless the world through Israel. So God, understandably, reacts in a way that is actually pretty, pretty equal with the seriousness of what they're doing. But then Moses speaks up. Moses said to the Lord, If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard the report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring those people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, Forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from from the time they left Egypt until now. So Moses steps in in the same role he played last time. Remember, Moses and and God are working together, so they reach decisions together. And so Moses says, but wait a minute, if you slaughter them, the world is going to think that you couldn't get them into Canaan, and this is your failure. Plus, and then he reminds God of who God has said he is, a God who loves, who is slow to anger, who forgives. So he asked God to continue to be who God is. Now, last time they had this conversation, it took Moses five times to bring God around, like to have the conversation with God to where God would agree to do what he intended to do the whole time, but it took five conversations, right? So now that they've rebelled again in in arguably an even worse way, it should take a lot more to bring him around, right? The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. He forgives them like that. It's important for us to recognize this beat in the story because God forgives them very easily just because all Moses had to do was ask and lay out the reasons why. It seems to me that it's important for this conversation to happen in front of Israel so that they know why they're not being wiped out. They need to have heard the decision making process. Even though God would have concluded to forgive them uh, in the end, they needed to hear this conversation happen so they don't think that God's just okay with mutiny. But He forgives them. And that's important for us to remember. The God of the Old Testament is consistently testified to be slow to anger, abounding in love, and He forgives. And that's exactly what He does in this moment. So God forgives the Israelites, forgave the Israelites of their rebellion. That's who he is. He is a God who forgives. It's important for us to remember that in order for us to have the right picture of who God is. It's also important for us to remember that in order to understand what's going to happen next. Because I think this is a really important beat in the story that we're about to hit. Because he doesn't just forgive them and say, All right, never mind, everybody pack up, we're going to go. I forgave you, let's head into the promised land. Instead, he says this, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who, has counted, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hands to make your home, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua son of Nun." As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. Now, that seems like a punishment, which seems to contradict the fact that God forgave them. But I don't think that's what's going on. It says God forgave them, so he must have forgiven them. So why are there still consequences? Because there is a difference between forgiving someone and putting them in a position of of trust again and giving them responsibility. There's a difference. Because one of the things that's going to happen after this story, immediately after he says this, the Israelites are going to say, oh, we're so sorry, we repent, let's go into the promised land anyway. And God had told them not to. They go in without him, and they get trounced. And then, they rebel against God several more times in the story as you're going through numbers. Like, this generation just never really gets it. In fact, Moses and Aaron even get caught up in it. They rebel, and they end up dying in the wilderness too. This generation doesn't get it. The next stage in the plan is for God to lead his people into the promised land to conquer the promised land. And that means he needs a generation that he can trust. It's going to be very important when we get into Joshua that the Israelites do what God tells them to do. Most of the time they do, but even the next generation is going to mess up. But most of the time they obey, and that's, and God can work through them. But if you're going to go into battle, you need people that are going to follow you. You need people that are going to obey you. And so what that means, essentially, what I see happening here is God saying, I forgive you, but you're not the generation that I can depend on to take the promised land. So you're going to get what you asked for. I'm not going to take you in. I'm going to take your kids in. And they'll be the generation that I can depend on. So God decided not to trust that generation with the next step of his plan because they had proven over and over and over again. I mean, numbers is like a broken record of how many times this generation will rebel and for how many reasons. They will find any reason to rebel against God, to not trust in him, and they prove as thoroughly as anyone can they cannot be depended on. Now it can feel like at this point God has given up on them and he's abandoned them and he's just going to wait until a people he likes comes around in the next generation. That's kind of what it could feel like if you don't... Cover the rest of the story. So I'm going to just touch briefly on one story that happens after this that helps us understand where how God really feels about this generation. Um, it's it's a very fascinating story that normally would involve a talking donkey, but I'm going to really uh, shorten it. Uh, so I encourage you to read um, the later chapters of Numbers about Balaam uh, because there's a talking donkey in it. It's a very interesting story. We're not going to cover that part. Basically, what you need to know is. Uh, the Israelites are in the wilderness and there are some Canaanite king, there's a Canaanite king who is real uncomfortable with this huge army of nomads that are camped out near his land. So he hires a a sorcerer named Balaam to curse them. Now, Balaam is actually so famous of a sorcerer that we have independent archaeological evidence of his existence. Like we have found documents mentioning Balaam, because this guy, if you needed someone cursed, Balaam was the guy to go to. Okay, this was his business. And so he calls Balaam to curse God. And through a weird story involving a talking donkey, God makes it clear to Balaam that he should say only what God tells him to say. Okay, So imagine it. Israel is camped out in the wilderness. And there, this is the generation that's in the middle of rebelling against God and complaining and just, just being horrible. And Balaam steps up on this mountain overlooking these people, this, this worst generation of Israelites, and he's about to say what God tells him to say. And you would think, at this point in the story, if Balaam says, I'm going to curse the Israelites, God will say, okay, here, let me, let me give you some suggestions. Like, here's, here's some notes I've been taking. Use this, right? Like, that's what you might expect God to do. He, he has every reason to, to lean into Balaam's cursing, right? Instead, when Balaam says what God tells him to say, This is one of the things that he says. Balaam spoke this message. Arise, Balak, that's the Canaanite king, and listen, hear me, son of Zippor. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no divination, no curse against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. That is what God says over Israel as they are in the midst of just being the worst, right? They are just being the worst. And at the same time, God has promised to watch over them, and he continues to watch over them to bless them. Now, he's not going to go into battle with them. He's not going to try and conquer the land with them, but he he still loves them. He still cares for them. He still keeps his promises to them. So God stayed faithful to his promise to bless and protect his people. So what we find is that God never abandoned the Israelites. He did make a decision not to use them in certain ways because they had proven they couldn't be counted on in those moments. But he never abandoned them. Because the book of Numbers, I would argue, is in a a lot of ways it's all about faithfulness. It's about our calling to be faithful to God in the many ways that we fail and what it means for God to be faithful to us in the midst of all of that. And so as we turn to what what this story teaches us about following God today, the theme is faithfulness. The first thing that we learn from this story, of the many things we can can learn, is that God works through faithful people and around faithless people. God works through faithful people. What he needs from people, needs in order to work through us, if we're going to be part of it, what we need to do is we need to be able to say yes. We need to be able to say yes to God even when we'd rather not say yes. We need to be faithful. And if we're faithless, well, that just means God's going to work around us rather than through us. Now, what I don't want you to hear is that you're one mistake away from being discounted as faithless and God's never going to use you. That's not because the Israelites did a lot worse than that, right? They were very thorough in proving to God that they couldn't be counted on. They also had a very, very important once, in, in for, once ever mission to conquer the promised land. But what it means is that each of us faces a choice as we seek to serve God. We can be faithful to him and we'll be used by him. Or we can be faithless, we can not step up when he calls us, we can do our own thing instead. We can refuse to follow what we know he wants us to do and instead do what makes me feel good. And in those moments, God will work around us because God does what he's going to do and it's our opportunity is to be a part of it or not be a part of it and hopefully each one of us as a follower of Christ wants to be part of God's plan we want to be part of what God's doing because ideally that is part of why we decided to follow Jesus it wasn't just to get out of jail to get out of hell free card it was because we believe in what God is doing and we want to be a part of it so that leads to the question, what does it mean to be faithful people? And we could you know, do sermons and sermons and sermons on that, but let me focus on a couple of things that I learned from this story about what it takes to be faithful to God. First thing is that being faithful to God means focusing on our assignment and leaving the big picture to God. God has asked the church, has told the church to take on the biggest picture issues that our world faces, the biggest possible things that could be confronted, the things that the world you know, continually tries to take on and fails or even won't bother taking on. We are called to spread the gospel to every person in the world. We are called to build the kingdom in every place. We are called to feed the hungry, to care for the poor, to do all these huge big picture things. And I don't know about you, but I can totally relate to the story of the Israelites of looking at the whole big picture and saying, I can't do that. I can't solve world hunger and letting that realization keep me from doing anything about hunger. Because I I might be able to feed the three people in front of me, but that's not going to take on world hunger. That's just a band-aid. That's just a short-term thing. That's not going to... And I look at how hard the big picture is, and I think, well, there's no point in trying. I get intimidated by what it would take to do this big thing that God calls me to do in my life. Maybe he's got me journeying to a particular place in my spiritual life, and I think, I can't get there from here. In reality, he's not asking me to get er, from here right now. He's asking me to take this step in that direction. But I think, I can't get there, So I'm not even going to step in that direction. And that can can shatter our faith. That can keep us from going where God is leading us. Because ultimately, God's the one with the big picture. God is the one who takes on the big picture, and he uses us and the steps that we take. He's not calling on you to end world hunger. He is calling on you maybe to feed the people in front of you. He's not calling on you to bring a nationwide revival yourself, but he's calling you to bring the gospel to the people you encounter, to the people he puts in front of you. He's calling you to be exactly like Christ. Ultimately, that's the big picture. But today, he might be calling you just to be a little bit more patient with your family, to be a little bit more diligent in your prayers. As we focus on the step in front of us, God can use us to accomplish the big picture that is on his agenda. The other thing that we learn about faith here, and I think this is really important for us in order to really understand what faith is, There's a misnomer or there's a mistaken idea we have that faith means sticking your fingers in your ears, ignoring any reason or evidence, and just sticking to what you've decided no matter what. So la la la, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I believe this, la 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 la. And that's kind of what we think of as faith. And oftentimes people talk about faith being the opposite of reason or of of evidence, that kind of thing. And we might say, yeah, well, the, the, the um, Israelites should have just stuck their fingers in the ears and said, God's going to give us the land, God's going to give us land, I don't care what we see, I don't care what's going on, la, 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 la. But that's not what happened here. God's the one who told them to send in, send in spies to gather intelligence, right? the Israelites what happened here was not that they let reason and rational thinking overwhelm their commitment to God it was that they let anxiety and fear overwhelm the most rational conclusion they could come to because remember they saw all these cities and all these these opponents but they also saw the parting of the Red Sea they also saw the plagues of Egypt they also saw the presence of God on the mountain the presence of God in their camp every day The rational conclusion for these people, based on the evidence they had, was that God could take care of Canaan no problem. That's the rational conclusion when you actually look at all the facts in light of what they knew. But instead, they let momentary fear, anxiety overwhelm what they knew so that they weren't even thinking about what they knew about God when when they panicked and when they rebelled. They weren't thinking clearly, they were thinking emotionally in the moment. So being faithful means choosing what you know to be true over what you feel in the moment. That's what it means to be faithful. It is entirely reasonable and correct to believe in God. I would never tell you that being a Christian means believing in God irrationally. It is entirely rational and accurate to believe in God, to trust in Jesus Christ. But there will be moments when it doesn't feel like it to you because, you've let your, because your emotions have gotten worked up and in the moment you panic. And faith means choosing what you know to be true over what you're afraid of or what your emotions that catch, that catch you up in that moment. This is something that C.S. Lewis said really well in uh, Mere Christianity. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Unless you tell your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Faith means that we hold to what we know, and we we interpret everything that's going on around us, the challenges that we face, in terms of what we know. Now, what the Israelites knew was that they knew the power of God that they had seen through miracles and through... They, they knew the presence of God. They knew the promises of God. They had all these things revealed to them in, in front of them with their very eyes. And they should have interpreted what, the obstacles in front of them in light of what they knew about God, and they didn't. Now, as Christians today, none of us were there for any of those things. So, we, so what do we hold on to? What is the fact that we hold on to that helps us interpret the world around us? Well, Paul gives us a very clear idea in Galatians chapter 2. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He's saying, my life is over and everything that's left in me is dedicated to Jesus, which is a huge commitment, a very difficult commitment to take on. And he tells us what motivates and drives that commitment. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul trusts in God and he gives his life to Jesus Christ because Jesus is the Son of God who loves him and gave himself for him. That fact, the fact that the Son of God loves him and gave himself for him is the central fact in Paul's life that that he uses to make decisions. Can I do this? Can I not do this? Is this worth it or is it not worth it? He reminds himself that the Son of God loved him and gave himself for him. So we trust in Jesus Christ because he loves us and gave himself for us. Every day we can be reminded of that. When we, when we look around and we say, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my bills this month, but the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. I don't know if I can keep my family together another month, but the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. I don't know what direction our country is going in, But the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. I'm afraid of this thing or that thing. Whatever you're afraid of, you can take that fear and put it in the light of who Jesus is and what he did. He is the Son of God and he loves you and he gave himself for you. He doesn't do that lightly. He doesn't waste that. If he gave himself for you, that means he is going to be faithful to you. He has a purpose for you. And he can be depended on. And so when we view every obstacle in our lives with that understanding that Jesus Christ loves us and gave himself for us, that is what helps us to be faithful to him, helps us to deal with the anxiety, deal with the fear, be able to decide to do the things God has called us to do even when we don't feel like it. Because he loves us and he gave himself for us. Amen? Amen. As we close, I'm going to ask you to consider what next step God might be calling you to take. God had a next step for the Israelites. He had the thing he was calling them to do. And God is calling you to take a next step, no matter where you are. And a few of them, some of them involve what you're doing with your families or what you're doing at your job. Some of them maybe have to do with what you're doing in the church. One next step you can take is to give your life to Jesus. If God, if today is the best day for you to answer the call of Jesus Christ because he loves you and he died for you, so that you could be who he's called you to be. Today is the best day to say yes to that and to step into his will and become who he's called you to be. If you want to make that decision today and you're here, we encourage you to come forward during the last song or talk to a minister after church. We'd love to, to talk with you through that. And if you're online, you can get a hold of the church. Um, uh, you can call us, you can come in, or you can get in touch with a Christian that you trust. God may also be calling you to get more connected with this particular congregation. We have a Connect class that we do that happens after church for about an hour and a half. We provide a lunch and we talk about who the church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. And you can sign up for that class through your Connect card. You can also sign up to join a small group, which is how we get people together in closer relationship in small groups that study together and pray together and, and build relationships with each other as we walk this path together. And finally, you could also join a service team, which is one of the ways that we give people to uh, be able to serve God, to be able to give back in a variety of different ways. If you want to join any of those, you can check that on your connection card as well. So I'd encourage you to now to consider what is the next step God is putting in front of you? Where is he calling you to go as we stand and sing our final song?